51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and bow out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach your transgressions your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who aren't God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Yes, so Lord, I simply pray this, that you would take this ancient prayer, written, I imagine, from a place of deep contrition. I wonder if when David penned that prayer, if he ever imagined we'd be reading it formally in an assembly like this one. So would you take this ancient prayer and would you put it on our lips, God? Put it on our lips. Would you allow it to unravel us and then rebuild us again today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I, I've got this vivid memory of riding the school bus home when I was in the second grade. Now some context is gonna be helpful for this story. So I'm honestly not sure if this still exists, but when I was in the second grade, there was a particularly thrilling day in the school year. And it was a day that started out like any other. I'd wake up, have Pop-Tarts for breakfast, strawberry frosted, just to get some fruit-based antioxidants in my system to start the day. <laughs> Get to school, I'd be cruising into my locker to grab my things for class, and then I'm, I'm walking to my homeroom saying hi to my buddies, I'm zipping past the library, and what is that I see in my peripheral? Could it really be, don't tease me, I do a double take, it is the Scholastic Book Fair. Yes? Now, if you've never experienced this public school traveling amusement park, 
I do need to fill it in. If you have experienced it, no more needs to be said. But if somehow you missed out on one of the peak experiences of childhood, here's the summary. You leave class for approximately 20 minutes in the middle of the school day to go shopping. Shopping for things like the latest release from the Captain Underpants series and uh, a, a massive eraser that fit at the end of your number two principal, making it impossible to use, far too heavy, but effortlessly fashionable. Shopping for things like bookmarks with a caterpillar on one end and a butterfly on the other. I'm talking to you about the essentials, my friends. Now, on this particular day, my mom knew it was coming, even though I didn't, and so she had planted a $5 bill in my backpack. Genius, right? Genius. I was feeling uh, a bit risky, a touch adventurous, and a whole lot in love at this point in my life, and that's because Jacqueline, the stunningly attractive bookworm that occupied space on the front row of my homeroom class, had recently engaged me in conversation for the first time, asking me, Tyler, have you ever read any chapter books? Now, I have to admit that I hadn't at this point. I was more of a pictures guy at that point in my life. But, so when I went to the book fair on this particular day, I was in search of something a bit more sophisticated, something that would show her that I'm a man of both brains and brawn, nachos on Super Bowl Sunday or caviar at the opera, that kind of versatility. So I reached past the picture books for the latest installment in the Goosebumps franchise. I read that entire book cover to cover and it never led to another conversation with Jacqueline, unfortunately. All was not completely for loss though because of this particular bus ride on the way home from school in the second grade. I'm sit, uh, sitting next to a friend of my little brother who's two years younger than me at this point. It happens to be Halloween and so I sat down next to him and said, hey, I'd love to tell you a ghost story. And he was like, great, go for it. Then I recounted the entire plot from that Goosebumps book that I had read. I didn't mean anything by that. I just thought it was appropriate for Halloween. He got off at his stop, which was a couple of blocks before mine. By the time I reached my front door, his mom had called my mom to say, your son told my son a ghost story on the school bus and he came home so afraid that he is shaking and crying. Now, I have a vivid recollection of that day, even now, because I can remember that being the first time in my life that I felt a deep sense of guilt. Something I intended from a place of total innocence had deeply hurt someone else. How could that be? Later on, when I was in high school, I got so angry at my brother that I punched a hole in my wall. Never told my parents about it, just covered it up with a Bob Dylan poster and moved on. Uh, when I was in college, I was out on my own for the first time and that brought up a lot of insecurity uh, to the surface. I found a way to deal with that insecurity called gossip. So as long as I could be on the side of those mocking others behind their backs instead of the one being mocked, I felt safe and okay and secure. I felt included and accepted so long as I was excluding and rejecting a few other people. In my early 20s, I dealt with a pornography addiction, and I call that addiction because it got well beyond the bounds of my own willpower to control. I did not want to do it, and yet there I was sitting at Bible college in a dorm room just after finishing up a paper on Romans, Googling something on my laptop again. That did not go away when I became a pastor, by the way. 
because I can also recall in equally vivid detail the heavy blanket of shame that I would wrap myself in on Wednesday nights when after preaching sermons at the youth group I founded, I far too often found myself going to sleep with the glow of my iPhone screen looking at images that I would never want anyone to know that I looked at. And I remember praying theologically misguided but very sincere prayers like, God, please do not penalize these sweet kids because I can't get it together. And it didn't just go away when I got married either. Your fiance discovering unflattering words on your internet history is one thing. That follow-up conversation is awful. I've lived it. But confessing that you still find yourself typing those same words into those same search engines a year into marriage, that's another thing entirely. And opening up your phone from time to time to see that your internet history has been left open, that she still sneaks to check on you when your phone isn't in your hands because she doesn't trust you, that's, that's devastating. It's at that point that I realized that my struggle had ripped a tear of distrust through the relationship that meant most to me, and it had actually inflicted deep pain on the person that I love the most. See, this thing called confession and the guilt and shame that often precedes it, it gets a whole lot less cute as you grow up, doesn't it? It's been about a decade since that was a struggle for me on any level. I truly have found what the scripture calls victory in that area of my life. But I share my story openly because it's my experience that God uses my wounds, not my competencies to heal others. So I will tell that story and keep telling that story because it is an open wound in my life that seems to spill supernatural healing out of me to, to others. Now, today, it's impatience and anger that's got a hold on me, which has the potential to sound okay so long as you keep it general, but if you were in the room for some of the petty arguments that I've started with my wife or some of the moments that I've snapped in rage at one of my sweet, innocent little children, it would not seem so general to you. And the reason that I tell you all that about me is because today I want to talk to you about confession. And if I'm going to talk to you about confession, then you've got to know right up front that I'm on the confessor side of the equation, not the absolver side. And I know that you know that. I know that you know that there is nothing different about you and me when it comes to confession and the need to confess. But I need you to know that I know that too, if we're going to go on this journey together. So teach us to pray. That is what we've titled our current teaching series in practice, and we've covered a whole lot of ground so far. Right? Pray as you can, because prayer is more practice than theory. So if you're not putting it into practice, all these teachings on prayer, honestly, they're not gonna do you a whole lot of good. Then be still and know that's the, the posture from which honest prayer emerges from. We've talked about adoration, the power of starting with praise, and about intercession, what it means to pray for others, about uh, a petition, how to ask God in prayer, and today we come to confession. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who, forget, who sin against us. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. So in a prayer as comforting as our Father, as cosmic as kingdom come, as personal as daily bread, Jesus then throws in confess. The momentum's been building and building in this prayer, and then he says, confess your sins. It's a bit of a record scratch, isn't it? 
It, it, it's kind of like you're at a wedding reception with a whole bunch of friends dancing and having the time of your life to the tune of Ariana Grande and Bieber's latest hit and like a tasteful throwback from Earth, Wind and Fire. And then the DJ puts on one of Al Green's deep cuts and slows things down. And you're thinking, look, I figured we were going here eventually, but come on, man, you're stopping the momentum. I was just losing myself in the music, and now there's a slow song, that's confession. But in reality, if it's the presence of God that you want, if it's the abundant life of Jesus that you're really after, confession is a part of the deal, and it's a really, really good part of the deal. But we'll get there. Here's where I want to start. We, we live in a culture that promotes a profound sense of denial about the biblical concept of sin and its presence in our lives. The only sin that everyone agrees on today is you calling anything that I'm doing sin. That is the only universal sin that's left in the Western world, and that's a dangerous place to be. Let me explain what I mean through two pictures. The, the first one comes from the ragamuffin gospel. Uh, in the Ragamuffin Gospel, there's a true story told from an alcohol rehab center in Minneapolis, and it's the story of a new patient named Max, and he shows up, and the facilitator says, so how long have you been an alcoholic, Max? And he says, whoa, that's unfair. Uh, I mean, I drink, but it's totally under my control. And then the facilitator pries, and he asks him questions about, well, how many drinks do you have a day, and do you have bottles hidden anywhere in your house, and so on and so forth, and Max just holds his ground. Look, I enjoy martinis, and there is nothing more to it than that. The facilitator keeps pushing, Max keeps holding, until eventually the facilitator says, someone give me a telephone. And he makes a phone call to Max's wife on speakerphone, and then she tells a story from last year's Christmas Eve. I want to read you that story. It seems like it happened just yesterday. Our daughter Debbie wanted a pair of earth shoes for her Christmas present. On the afternoon of December 24, my husband drove her downtown, gave her $60, and told her to buy the best pair of shoes in the store. That is exactly what she did. When she climbed back into the pickup truck her father was driving, she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world. Max was preening himself like a peacock and decided to celebrate on the way home. He stopped at the Cork and Bottle, that's the tavern a few miles from our house, and told Debbie he'd be right out. It was a clear and extremely cold day, about 12 degrees above zero, so Max left the motor running and locked both doors from the outside so no one could get in. It was a little after three in the afternoon and... Silence. Yes? Her voice grew faint. She was crying. My husband met some old army buddies in the tavern. Swept up in the euphoria over the reunion, he lost track of time, purpose, and everything else. He came out of the cork and bottle at midnight. He was drunk. The motor had stopped running and the car windows were frozen shut. Debbie's, Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and her fingers. When we got her to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated her thumb and forefinger on her right hand. She will be deaf for the rest of her life. It was at that point that Max collapsed on the floor, sobbing hysterically, because in that moment he saw the truth about himself. He saw himself as he really was. You see, he had told himself so many lies that he could not see his own real story. And until need was admitted, healing was impossible. And Max's life, that, that's a picture of the state of Western culture. We are promoting freedom publicly, but inwardly we are miserable. 
we're universally agreed to, to sort out our private issues in private and keep up appearances in public, and that is a tragic misstep because hiding is an agonizing lie. The deep longing of the human heart is to be lo known completely and loved completely. Denial of sin and the reluctance to confess guards us from both of those things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. So let me offer you a second picture of the same tragic condition. This one is a little bit more ancient. It's found in John chapter eight. A woman gets thrown face first in the dirt right at the rabbi's feet. Now just a few minutes ago, she was so carefree and alive. She was smiling and running from her house to his the way she probably always did in the early afternoon when her kids were off at school and her husband was at work and she could be with him. Now, I imagine that she never found, like, thought of herself as a potential adulteress when she got married, but then somewhere along the way, she had met this guy, and with him, in intimacy with him, that's the only place she could really feel like herself again. But this time, the priest walked in on them, shamed her publicly as a prop to discredit Jesus, tore her out of that bed, marched her with a fistful of her hair through the city, threw her down at the rabbi's feet right outside the temple where he was preaching again today. The law says death penalty. Stoner. You gonna disagree with Moses? See, he was forcing Jesus between the people and the law. This was the perfect trap. And she's lying there in nothing but a sheet with her cheek pressed against the dirt. The carefree thrill of a few minutes ago has now been replaced by a heavy blanket of shame as questions cycle through her head. How long has he known? And who else knows? And what does it feel like when they actually stone you? Jesus doesn't say anything to the priest's question. He just stoops down and starts drawing in the dirt and after letting the silence hang for so long that the priest is about to blurt something out again, he stands up and says, all right, stoner, but whoever hears without sin, you're the one that throws the first rock. Plop, plop, plop. She must have flinched when she heard the first sound, right? But then after a minute, she realizes they're not throwing the stones. They're dropping them. And after every one of those accusers had gone, she looked up into the eyes of love and love only. And this is John 8, verse 11. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And you know what I find fascinating about this story? It's that this is the story that she would have gone on telling forever. It was the very part of her life that she wanted to erase or edit or hide away or in fine print or just remove from her story altogether becomes the part of her story that she can never tell her story without. That's the kind of author God is. He does not edit. He repurposes and redeems so that the worst moments become the irreplaceable ones. Her most exposed failure then becomes her greatest victory. Frederick Buechner says it like this. What we hunger for, perhaps more than anything else, is to be known in our full humanness. And yet that is often what we also fear more than anything else. 
It is important to tell from time to time the secret of who we truly and fully are, even if we tell it only to ourselves, because otherwise we are on the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are, and little by little come to accept the highly edited version which we put forth and hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. You see, confession, the terrifying choice to be our naked selves before God and each other is not the admission of failure, it is the declaration of triumph. Because of Jesus, our most devastating failures can become our greatest victories because they're the places that his grace can seep deepest into our inner being. That first picture I gave you, Max, at rehab, that's where we are. That second picture I gave you, neither do I condemn you, that's where we're going. You see, sin is simultaneously the most controversial idea in Christianity, and it's the one that's most universally agreed upon. Everyone agrees there's something wrong with the world. Everyone. The difference between philosophies and religions and thinkers throughout history is the vocabulary used to describe that issue. Sin is the precise point where historical eras and cultures and philosophies all find agreement. And... Sin is also hugely controversial. Sin has been so manipulated, even abused in some cases, that in a church, when someone like me stands on a stage like this one and uses that tiny three-letter word, a percentage of the room will want to tune out everything that I might say after that because of some subjective and often very legitimately painful experience you have in your past for someone with the authority to talk about grace beating you down with sin. So let me give you as best I can the broad biblical definition of sin. Because undue pain and manipulation gets attached to this sin thing when people minimize something that's extraordinarily broad into something that is extremely narrow and specific. But the biblical concept of sin is not narrow, it is broad. There are eight Hebrew words, in fact, for the one English word sin. So I want to give you the story of sin, because I think the broad biblical definition is best understood as a story. <clears throat> On the Bible's opening page, man and woman are described as naked and unashamed. That's about a whole lot more than physical nakedness and hippie liberation, by the way. That is about the state of their souls. Flip the page and you'll come to the fall when sin plunges into the story. You see, believing in the existence of God has never really been the primary hang-up for us humans. Across cultures and eras, the existence of something bigger than the self, some kind of designer outside of us, has always been the primary belief. Even today, in a post-enlightenment, highly intellectual society, the majority of people still believe in some kind of deity that's running the show. The hang-up is trusting the God that we believe exists. And pretty early on in the story, Adam and Eve start to suspect that God's holding out on them, that more control will lead to more flourishing, so they pick that forbidden fruit in an attempt to get a full, free, abundant life apart from God. They trusted themselves, not the God that they said they believed in, and that is what the Bible calls sin. It is a good desire channeled through the wrong means. Sin, a definition that I find helpful is this. It's an attempt to meet my deep needs by my own resources. That is the broad biblical understanding of sin. Any attempt to meet my deepest needs by my own resources. A good desire channeled through the wrong means can never satisfy that desire. At best, it can only numb the longing. 
The human response to the sin thing is then hiding. Right away, Adam and Eve realize that they're naked. They sew fig leaves together to cover themselves and they hide from each other. Then they hear God, uh, his footsteps approaching through the garden and they hide from him in the brush. Naked and unashamed has suddenly become covered and ashamed. God sees them hiding. Honestly, difficult dude to play hide and seek with, right? And the bottom falls out of his stomach and he says, who told you that you were naked? Said another way, who stole my children's innocence? And then the final heartbreaking words of this chapter, Genesis 3, go like this. He, meaning God, placed them on the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. So the entrance back to the full, free, abundant kind of life that God has designed for us is now guarded. And Adam and Eve leave the garden walking east, but they do not go alone. God goes with them. God's not lowering the standard of holiness, but he is coming after us. The biblical story is not one of a compromising God, it is one of a pursuing God. And the rest of the the story is just a 66 book anthology on a single theme, picture after picture after picture of pursuing love. So here's a summary of the whole thing if you wanna save yourself a little bit of time. I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is that you are loved. Loved right now without qualification and without restriction. Loved unconditionally for who you are. Loved in a way that you cannot lose. The bad news is that you will find it very hard to believe that and even harder to experience it. Your instinct will be to forever drum up your own lovableness, to become lovable in your own eyes the way that you already are in God's, to become lovable in some way that you can control and claim for your very own. The good news is called grace. The bad news is called sin. So Jesus shows up to people like us, living wedged between realities like that, bends down in the dirt to a serial adulterer and says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You cannot outrun my love. You see, God did not lower the standard of holiness. He found a way to make us holy that was not dependent on our performance. Grace wins. That's what David discovered when he prayed, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. In this prayer of confession, he's doing what Adam and Eve failed to do. He is running to God naked and unashamed. When he sees his self, his true self, the parts of him that make him grimace and wanna look away, he does not dress up in fig leaves. When he hears God walking through the garden, he does not hide in the brush. He runs to the Father and says, I've made a mess, but if you, if you will wash me, I can be clean, whiter than snow. And David's prayers of confession, if you read this one or the others found throughout the Psalms, they are not general. They are specific and detailed. Why? Because one of the names we throw around for God is the great physician. He's a healer. But a doctor cannot heal you without an accurate diagnosis, right? If I go to the doctor later today and say, I'm I'm feeling generally sick. I don't know, it might be like a mental thing. It could be emotional. Sometimes I'm thinking it's physical. I'm not really sure, but I'm feeling generally sick. Can you help me with that, doc? They can't do anything for you, but if you describe your symptoms and you name the way that this sickness is manifesting itself within you, then you can find healing, right? 
And so in the same way we confess, we name our symptoms. What David is doing in Psalm 51 is he's saying, here's the particular brand of the universal disease that I carry and the way that it's manifesting in me right now. And I'm going to name my sin completely and unfiltered because I want healing completely and unfiltered. That's what's going on. And David keeps on praying like this. Later in Psalm 139, he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He openly invites the Spirit of God to search him, to turn over his inner life, to show him the parts of of his sin that he might be missing. He even celebrates that discovery. Why? Because confession is a terrifying gift, which should sound like a contradiction, because it is. What's the alternative to hiding? It's the refusal to hide. It's the terrifying insistence on exposing ourselves to God. That is the only way we can open ourselves up to unconditional love. What made David a man after God's own heart? Because that's basically what's inscribed on his tombstone, right? Have you ever asked yourself that? What made this guy a man after God's own heart? Because if I read his bio, he's a liar, a manipulator, an adulterer, or potentially rapist, depending on how you weigh the evidence, and a murderer. So what on earth makes his heart like God's? Only this, that he kept a journal. And that journal is called the Psalms, and it's the prayer book that we find wedged into the center of our Bible. And the Psalms are peppered with confessions, with honest, unfiltered, raw nakedness before God. He was a long way from perfection, but he refused to hide. David did not defeat the curse. He did not weaken the curse. He he did not reverse Adam and Eve's failure. In fact, he furthered it. He he tried again and again to channel his deep needs Um, to meet his deep needs by his own resources. He repeatedly channeled good desires through the wrong means. David didn't weaken the curse. There was another who would come to do that, but it wasn't David. But neither did the curse define David. Grace, that's the theme that runs through and defines his life. It's grace, not sin, that defines him. He's made an absolute mess, but when he realized he was naked, he refused to hide. He ran to the Father. And that's the power of confession. He takes our worst moments and then turns them into our triumphs, the wounds through which we get to heal the world. David doesn't resist confession. He runs toward it because he knows God's heart. And Jesus made David's discovery our discovery. You see, God sent Jesus because we needed more than a doctrinal statement, because it's hard to receive love from information, right? If all we needed was information, God probably would have like lobbed down a book of rules. But we didn't need just information, we needed pursuing love, and that's who Jesus is. This is why it says in Hebrews four, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So Jesus did not reveal to us a God who's cool and calculated. He showed us a God who is deep, and personal and who has even an emotional response to sin and the consequences that it fills our lives with. Uh, Hebrews describes Jesus' response to sin this way, empathy. Now, the the ancient Greek word translated into English as empathize in Hebrews 4.15 is the compound word sympatheo. Can you say that? It's a combination of the word pasco, meaning to suffer, and the prefix with, like we use the word, or the prefix co in English, like co-pilot, 
coexist, codependent. Sympatheo, translated literally, means co-suffer. This is how Jesus deals with our sin, co-suffering. He suffers with us. He suffers the consequences of our thoughts, actions, and disordered desires. He suffers the subtle agony of hiding and pretending that it fills us up with insecurity. He suffers the estrangement from God we face when we willingly manage an area of sin in our lives that we've just gotten tired of confessing and fighting against. See, our intuitive assumption is that we're closest to God when our lives are going well and according to plan, right? We feel like Jesus is by our side, present and helping when we're living wisely and making good decisions and keeping in step with his mission in the world, but Hebrews says it works exactly the opposite way. That Jesus is nearest us in our weaknesses, not just our strengths. You see, our hearts corrupted by sin, they work like the opposite poles of a magnet that are ever resistant to grace, ever trying to get what grace might give us by a different means. But Jesus' heart, uncorrupted by sin, works exactly the opposite way. He's drawn to us in our weakness. He's magnetic to us in our moments of failure. He runs to us to meet us in our weakness. Dane Ortland writes, If you are in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. See, he shares in my pain. He takes on my condition. He suffers with me, yet he did not sin. And that's our hope. That is our only hope that the one who is deepest with empathy is also fullest with healing power. He is with us in our weakness always. So how do we take him up on his power to heal? Confession. Confession is when we turn to him, look him in the eye, acknowledge his presence here with us, not to judge us, but to rescue us. You see, I know personally and painfully what it is to feel my cheek pressed against the dirt like that woman in John 8. I am not a man of clean hands and a pure heart. My life so often is a mockery of who I want to be. And every time I find myself there lying in shame, I hear that finger again. And I look into the eyes of love and love only and I hear him, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And that, that love, it's the only thing powerful enough to change me. So what if every time I find myself face down in the dirt, it's an opportunity to again hear his finger tracing through the sand and making promises of love to me that will never quit? And what if the parts of our stories that we'd like to edit or erase or hide away in fine print in the end become the parts that we go on telling forever? And what if you find yourself there today and it's not an invitation to clean yourself up or get yourself together or really mean it this time, but an invitation to realize how loved you really are. You see, that's where we discover what David discovered, that God's grace is more powerful than my sin. It's a discovery not made in the comfort of theological reflection, but in the terrifying nakedness of public, or I'm sorry, of personal confession. You see, in our story, confession charades as a failure, but it is not. The, the lie that plagues the modern church is this, that spiritual maturity means that as I grow up in the faith, I confess less and less. 
But, but the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means that confession is not a white flag. It is a victory cry. You see, in our story, we run to confession and we fear keeping up appearances. Spiritual maturity is not the need to never confess. Spiritual maturity is having greater freedom to confess. In the ancient Near Eastern world that the scriptures emerged from, uh, people used to just build one city on top of another. And so to, to like do an archeological discovery in the ancient Near East is to dig through one city and then when that, when that city had been conquered, they would just burn it down and then build a new city right on top of it. No one was developing new land. And so you would dig through like one culture and era and then get down beneath that to a different culture and era and down beneath that to a different culture and era. And that is confession. It's to excavate the layers of your life, uncovering not just what's obvious on the surface, but uncovering story after story after story after story of your past. Past that's defining your present. That's confession. You see, in the modern church, we've mistakenly reimagined spiritual maturity as the need to confess less and less. As I ascend in my relationship with God, I confess less because I have less to confess. But spiritual maturity is the exact opposite. It is not an ascent, it is a descent. It is not up and to the right, it's an archeological dig. It is discovering layer after layer of what was in you all, all along. It's discovering the depths of my personal brand of fallenness and equally the depths that God's grace really goes. The pathway of spiritual maturity is the inner excavation called confession. And a mature church community is not a community that does not need to confess. It is not a church without sin. It's a church without secrets. It's a church that's unafraid to confess. You see, when we come in and out of God's presence with one another, and we keep up appearances, what we are implicitly saying to one another is God's grace is not enough. It's not enough for me, and it's not enough for this. I just need one more week. I can sort this thing out on my own. You know, we say we believe in grace, but confession is how we trust the grace that we say we believe in. And the reward of confession is that the parts of our stories that we wanted to edit or erase altogether become the very parts that we tell forever, the, the parts we never stop returning to because that's the kind of author God is, not an editor, a redeemer. He only works with rough drafts, but he only writes redemption stories. David discovered the power of healing and forgiveness and that discovery turned confession from a slow dance into a victory dance. And we are invited to the same discovery. And that is our practice for this week. It is to know the terrifying gift of confession and community. So this week in our communities, we wanna know the victory of Jesus that turned confession from exposing shame into the pathway of maturity. So that great discovery, it comes through practice and this week's practice is up right now on our website for all of our Bridgetown communities. But confession isn't only about maturity. Confession is about both maturity in the church and revival in the city. And it's easier to see that if I try to show you a picture of it than to try to describe it to you. So let me give you a picture. The Moravian Revival was a 100-year, 24-7 prayer meeting that started with 48 refugees that led to, statistically speaking, the greatest move of God since the book of Acts. Here's that story. In the 1700s, there was this radical German guy named Zinzendorf. Great hair. 
He inherited family property and then he turned it into a relief site for refugees. He built 34 homes on it and refugees came and occupied the space for free on that property. They named it Hernhunt, which means the Lord's Watch. 48 of those refugees living on the family property, 24 men and 24 women covenanted to take an hour a day to pray 24-7 for heaven to come to earth in Hernhunt. Five years into that commitment to nonstop prayer, they had already launched the largest missions movement that the world had ever seen to that point and has not seen anything like it since. The global missions expression that is common in the modern church today gets traced back to a few refugees in a prayer room. And when pastors like me tell the Moravian story, it is usually to try to fire up people like you to get really serious about prayer and get in that room. <laughs> it's, it's usually uh, to try to recapture the highlight reel of a revival by vision and grit and inspiration, but that's just our American spin on an ancient story. <laughs> See, when the ancient refugees who actually lived that story told their own story, if you read their accounts, they don't make that big of a deal about the prayer movement. They, they make a huge deal of the night that started the prayer movement. And that story goes like this. Zinzendorf loved a group of refugees into the family of God, and then he gave them this radical vision. What if we lived an early church community on this little family property? And it was stunning, it was inspiring, and five years in, it was mostly disappointing. The, the, the kind of community they wanted, see, it takes daily countercultural decisions to prioritize you over me, and that's against human nature. And so five years in, there's a whole lot of disillusionment, there's pain, there's disappointment, there's blame, and there's mostly just a ton of settling for some good but lesser version than what Zinzendorf had talked about in the first place. And then on August 13th, 1727, they gathered together for another normal church prayer meeting. Zinzendorf preached on confession, and as he did, the Holy Spirit fell in such an overwhelming way that in that very moment, in that very room, they began confessing their sins and wrongs both to God and to one another. There was no buts, no explanations needed, no holding back, just naming my sin and having it wiped clean in forgiveness. And they say that the spirit fell so heavily that they stayed for hours in that place of confession and then stumbled out of the meeting room like drunks out of a pub at last call. Not because the worship was so powerful, because the confession was so honest. And two weeks after that night, they decided to start a prayer meeting, and that prayer meeting lasted 100 years. So how exactly did the Moravian revival happen? Vision and grit? <laughs> no, no, no. 100 years of prayer was just the overflow of one night of honest confession. See, revival does not come because we all agree that it sounds like a good idea and would make Portland awesome. Revival comes when we undress ourselves of our fig leaves in front of God and one another. Let me bring that a little bit closer. Malcolm Gladwell grew up in a simple town with a very real Christian faith. As a young adult, he moved to New York City, and in that complex, pluralistic society of an urban core, his childhood faith was simple enough to question at first and eventually dismiss altogether. Does that sound familiar? A, a childhood faith that was really sincere that then gets eaten up by the big city? You seen that story before? You lived that story before? Gladwell then rediscovered the faith that he dismissed, not through inspiration, but through confession and forgiveness. In 2013, as a staff writer for The New Yorker, he was covering this developing story in Winnipeg, Canada. 
After the largest manhunt in the city's history, cops had found a, a young girl's frozen, deceased body in a shed with her hands and feet still bound. And here was a father making a statement at a news conference that Gladwell attended following her funeral as a journalist covering the story while the perpetrator is still at large. The father said this, we would like to know who the person or persons are so that we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. And then the mother pulled the mic to herself and added, I can't say at this point that I forgive this person, but we've all done something dreadful in our lives or have at least felt the urge to. And then Gladwell spent the afternoon interviewing them uh, a bit after that. He was asking them questions while they worked in their garden and he later wrote this. Something happened to me when I sat in Wilma Dirksen's garden it's one thing to read in a history book about people empowered by their faith, but it's quite another to meet an otherwise ordinary person in the backyard of a very ordinary house who's managed to do something utterly extraordinary. Their daughter was murdered. And the first thing the Dirksons did was stand up at a press conference and talk about forgiveness. Maybe we have difficulty seeing the weapons of the spirit because we don't know where to look or because we are distracted by the louder claims of material advantage, but I've seen them now and I will never be the same. Weapons of the Spirit. That's how Malcolm Gladwell described confession and forgiveness. You see, God's always had a soft spot for human weakness, for scars. That's how he heals. God's one and only method for renewing the world is grace, and he is stubborn and he's sticking to it. Confession and forgiveness is how we simultaneously choose both, our weakness and God's grace, and that's what makes them weapons. And that's how confession can spark a revival. And confession was so common in the early church, if you read Roman history, you'll be blown away by how central the practice of confession and forgiveness was in the early church communities. And then around the third century, the church became more institutionalized, the confession was handed off to bishops. And then in the year 1215, the first confessional booths were built in, in Catholic churches, and that started the practice of confessing in secret to a priest. So just over a thousand years after Jesus, confession has gone from a heavenly invitation practiced frequently within the gathered community to a confession professional booth with a man you barely know in secret. And today, Catholic or Protestant, we've mostly dismissed the concept entirely. You see, the deep tragedy written into our history as the church is that the power of confession has been stripped away from us. But the great invitation we have as the church as we look into our future is to rediscover the power of confession. James chapter five says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Now that word healed, it's the ancient Greek iomai, which is defined as wholeness. And it's the exact same word you will find in the gospels when Jesus cleanses the skin of a leper or, or opens the eyes of a blind man or straightens the back of the paralyzed. So just to be clear, biblically speaking, supernatural healing looks like a blind man seeing, a paralytic dancing, Lazarus strolling out of his own grave, and you naming and confessing your wrongs to one another before the presence of God and receiving his forgiveness. It's in that same category. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. Why? That you may be healed. It is not by our gifts insights, ideas, plans, or qualifications that God is determined to heal the world, it's by our scars. It is our wounds confessed and then healed that become sources of healing for a hurting world. So I'm gonna land here today. C.S. Lewis paints a vivid picture of confession in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. 
Eustace, a young boy who had traded his innocence to a deceiver when he didn't even really know what he was doing, was then forced to live in this covering of dragon skin. That's Lewis's reimagining of the Genesis fig leaves. And he had tried to pull this dragon skin off of himself time and time again, only to see it grow back again every time he peeled it. And then finally exhausted, so exhausted he simply lies still. He's approached by the lion Aslan, Lewis's depiction of Jesus. And I'll read this. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself three times before, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender now underneath that I'd no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You see, there's this cry in our community and I feel it rising up and it goes something like this. We want your presence, Lord! And he responds so gently, you'll have to let me undress you. You see, David knew what it felt like to be undressed at first and then thrown into the water. He knew the sting and then the childlike joy of splashing around as free as a kid. And that's why he wrote in Psalm 51, his famous confession, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Let the place of soul-crushing agony, let the secret that I'm holding beneath the surface, let the weight that I'm lugging around turn into pure joy. Dancing, laughing, shouting, joy. And that's the invitation of the way Jesus taught us to pray. And that's the invitation today, is lives that feel crushed right now will turn to joy as we gather together today. Yes, I want that. How do I get there? You'll have to let me undress you, he says.